Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right. Good morning, Mercy family. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day to our moms in the room. Let's cheer for our moms, both campuses. Yeah. That's right. Even if she ain't in this room, she can hear you and you know that. So it's a good job. Good job cheering on your mom. Man, I have a great, a great joy today, a great gift um, for us, for Mercy Church, uh, that uh, I get to introduce the guy who's going to be preaching for us this morning, um, Pastor J.D. Greer, who's the lead pastor of the Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham, is going to be preaching for us this morning. Um, several of you know uh, my story, know Mercy's story. I was a pastor there at the Summit for about 10 years. I belonged to the Summit Church all the way um, dating back to my days at UNC. In fact, um, J.D. and I joke a lot, one of the first uh, th- ways I got involved at the Summit Church, he had just become the pastor there, and he decided to open up a Bible study for college students that met at 6 a.m. on Friday mornings. Um, So we called it our Thursday night Bible study, and it was an awesome time that we had together. Uh, But in so many ways, y'all, the stuff that um, is at the core of who Mercy Church is, the idea that we are a sending church, the value that we keep the gospel at the center of all we do, the things you hear me, anything good you hear me say, had its genesis learning under Pastor JD. He's a real gift, an older brother and spiritual father in so many ways to me. Um, and has therefore been a blessing, I know, to so many of you, whether you realized it or not. Um, I want to say he has just released a book called Essential Christianity. And as a gift to you guys, what Mercy Church would like to do is a gift to our moms. So that's if you are a mom, if you are soon to be a mom, if you are praying and asking the Lord uh, to become a mom, uh, all of you included, we would like to give you a copy of JD's book, Essential Christianity. It's just our gift to you. When you head out today, um, if you haven't already picked one up, you can pick one up in the lobby. Um, Our gift to you, we believe it'll be really good for you. uh, And we're glad to be able to give that to you. All right. I don't want to take up any more time uh, because I know he's got a great word for us. I've already heard a little bit about it. So will you join me at both of our campuses in welcoming Pastor J.D. Greer? Thank you, Spence, and uh, happy Mother's Day to all of you. I uh, cannot tell you how much I love and am proud of your pastor. Uh, You guys think he is immature now. You should have just seen him when he was a college student. He's a lot of maturity went into that guy. But um, just when I think about, you know, at the Summit Church, we always say we're committed to sending our best. And I can't think of somebody who exemplifies that more than your pastor. Uh, It was painful to see him leave our staff team, but then to be here and to see kind of just what God is using him for. Um, I really do believe I'm not just saying this because I'm standing here with him or because we're connected in some way, but he is one of the um, the greatest young uh, teachers and leaders that we have um, coming up in the church. And you have the privilege of serving under his leadership and this incredible team that he has built. 
Uh, he is uh, he is smart. He is savvy. Uh, and somehow, when despite all that, I just if you've been around him, he's just down to earth. You just feel like I'm talking to a real person that has the same problems. In fact, Veronica and I, my wife and I, were having a dinner with he and Courtney not too long ago, and um, you know, I just appreciate it because it was just unfiltered. And they were talking about things going on in their marriage, and it was just it was just raw. And then they got into some argument, and y'all, I mean, like. I mean, if you've been around them, you did some kind of argument and it, it like got to the point that it was awkward because my wife and I are just watching this go back and forth. And at some point, Spence, he slams down his, uh, you know, fork and he looks at Courtney. He says, I just do not understand how God could have made one human being so beautiful and so stupid at the same time. <laughs> And Veronica and I looked at Courtney and she just without even like, without even batting an eye said, well, God made me beautiful so that you would fall in love with me and stupid. So I would fall in love with you. It's time. So parts of that story are exaggerated. I do feel integrity compels me to say that, but um, the essence of it feels true. Um, but like I said, it was painful to see um, him going, but honestly, y'all just standing here and uh, being able to, to see, Spence has told me about what's happened here, of course, and, um, but I kind of feel like if you're familiar with the story of the Queen of Sheba in the Bible, where you, you hear about it with your ears, but then you see it with your eyes and you say, not the half has been told to me. And uh, it just makes me rejoice. Those of you that are grandparents, I know there's not that many of you in the room in that category, but uh, you rejoice in what you um, do that succeeds, but you rejoice even more in what your kids do and what their kids do. And uh, so um, God is doing something here. I hope you don't take that for granted. And I hope that you, uh, you never, never, ever um, let uh, that go without saying um, thank you to God. And so that's what I want to talk to you about a little bit this morning is what God has called you to as a church, I believe, and the path the path, specifically the path that you should expect in getting there. So if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter nine, if you have your Bibles, you take them out and I know you guys are super tech savvy here in, in Charlotte, so you can turn them on, take out your Bible and turn them on. The little sleepy Baptist church I grew up in, my pastor used to say the sweetest sound he heard was the sound of the ruffling of the pages as people open their Bibles. I never, as a pastor of a church full of millennials, I never get to hear that sound. I get to see the warm glow of God's word on people's faces, and I'll take it. Um, but whatever you got, Acts chapter 9. I was once asked, what are the hardest passages in the Bible for you to interpret, for you to preach? And I said, easy. It's the little blank spaces in the Bible where the narrative stops, and then you skip an amount of time before anything picks back up. I know that you guys have been studying the life of David recently, and our church did also, and there's a few of those sections in David's life where um, all of a sudden, like, for example, one of them is when David is anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel, and there you have him, 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, the oil of anointing is running down his head. He's been promised he's going to be not just a king, but Israel's greatest king, and then immediately after that verse, blank space. In fact, when the next verse picks up after that, it's not about David at all. David, you, what, what scholars tell us is that's about a seven-year window, that little blank space. David, after he got anointed with oil, he doesn't you know, go down to the palace and start trying on robes. He doesn't you know, get interviewed in Judaism today. He doesn't go out to Goliath training school, none of that. He goes back to the pasture for seven years just to follow sheep around. And I've got to ask, what is that like? What is it like to have just been told by a prophet of God that you're going to be king and tomorrow morning you're chasing sheep around and shoveling sheep dung? 
I mean, it, it, it's, it's almost a little humorous when you think about it, but it's not humorous when you're living through it. And there are a lot of places in your life where the narrative just seems to stop it. You've probably been there, right? Something, I mean, you thought everything was going the way it was supposed to go. You were obeying God. You were following God. He seemed to be involved in your life. And then blank space. The marriage partner never comes along. You just can't get pregnant. You thought it was time to start a family. You can't get pregnant. The job promotion never came through. That ministry door did not open. You, you never, you still, as of now, have not got the healing. And you wonder, God, have you forgotten me? What I'm going to try to show you from Acts 9 this morning is that those blank spaces are not there because God has forgotten you. On the contrary, those blank spaces are usually when God is doing his best work in you. My goal this morning is to give you hope because hope is the same thing as faith and faith is the most powerful indomitable force on the planet. In fact, you might've heard about the legendary experiment conducted about 60 years ago now at John Hopkins University in which a researcher was, was trying to determine how long rats could swim before they drowned. Why there's any positive benefit of knowing that fact, I don't know but that's what he wanted to find out. And he found out that if you just drop rats in a tub of water, they could last about 10 minutes before they drowned. But he found out if during the course of that 10 minutes, two or three times, you merely picked up the rat for about two seconds and put the rat back in the water, then that same rat could swim for more than 60 hours, changing no factor changing no factor except the introduction of hope, gave those rats the ability to swim more than 100 times longer than they had without that. My purpose this morning is to give God's spiritual rats hope. <laughs> to help you see that when you're confused about what God is doing in your life or what he's not doing, that he is so faithfully fulfilling the call that he has placed on you. Acts 9, here's the context. Paul has just been converted. God wanted the early church leaders, one of them, Ananias, to go baptize him. Ananias, however, is very timid to do so because up until this point, Paul has been public enemy number one of the church. So verse 15, God appears directly to Ananias in the form of an angel. Verse 15, go, he says to Paul, for he is a chosen instrument. If you underline things in your Bible or if you mark things, take notes, that's the key word. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I'm going to show him, here's the other thing you should underline, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Chosen to suffer. Those two things don't seem to go together, do they? I mean, suffering is what the enemy causes, right? Or isn't suffering what happens to you when you are not being blessed? or maybe because you're not doing things right and God wants to teach you a corrective lesson, that's when he brings suffering into your life, right? In the next 10 verses, you will see that Paul suffers from the very beginning, all kinds of hardship. Here are the three points I'm gonna to try to make today. Number one, Paul was chosen, yet he was opposed. Number two, Paul was chosen, yet God took many, many years to prepare him. And then number three, Paul was chosen, yet he suffered. Paul's experience, he's going to tell us later in one of his epistles, was to give us a pattern for those of us who believe. 
And so what you're seeing in Paul's conversion is you're seeing a microcosm of the story of your own life. If you are a follower of Jesus like Paul was, you should expect to experience in some degree the same things he experienced. And so you're going to see that in opposition, in delay, in hardship, even in boredom and tedium, that God is faithfully at work in your life. Let's just read the rest of the passage. Verse 19 picks up right after Paul is baptized. For some days, Paul was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. He knew the core of his calling. He knew what Jesus had, had determined for him and saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? Yet Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was indeed the Christ. But when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But as his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was actually a disciple. Here's number one, if you're taking notes, Paul was chosen, yet he was opposed. I think probably the hardest thing about this for Paul was that most of the opposition that he experienced came from his fellow Jews, people he had grown up with, people that, that he learned about God together with. They were supposed to understand. In fact, Paul for a while thought if he could just get in a room, get in front of them, have a cup of coffee and explain it to them, that they would get it, but they didn't. Even the early church, even the followers of Jesus did not have Paul's back. You saw verse 26 says they were all afraid of him because they didn't even believe he was sincere in his confession. I'll tell you, sometimes the hardest thing in Christian ministry or just being a Christian is when those who you expect to recognize what God is doing in your life, when they don't. People in your church, friends, your spouse, a parent, other pastors. I think maybe the hardest thing, Spence, I think I've told you this over the last couple of years has been the friendly fire that I've taken from those that I fought were on my side. I mean, that's always an issue, but especially the last couple of years, we have people in our church, some at church, where I've been pastor for 20 some years, people that I know of, I'm thinking of right now, they've been in our church for more than 15 years. I'd married their kids. I'd walked with them through tragedy. We've done life together for a decade. We've been in a small group together. Had them just announced to me that they were leaving our church and leaving loud because, because we asked people to wear masks for too long or because we let people take them off too quickly, because we said too much about George Floyd, because we said not enough about George Floyd, because we were too supportive of Trump, because we were not supportive enough of Donald Trump. I've had meetings with people in the same afternoon, in the same, like, like one right after the other say to me, you know, you are too positive about President Trump. And another say, you're just way too negative. And I respond, to my knowledge, I have not said the name Donald Trump or anything about him. And they would say, it's just your posture. We can tell. We can just tell just by looking at you. It's what you didn't say. What God revealed in those couple of years is that for many of our people, they were Republican and Democrat before they were followers of Jesus. In fact, I'll just tell you guys, it's odd that as evangelicals for a group so known to be against cancel culture, it was odd how quickly many of us would cancel our church over something that was non-essential. And I did what you would do in the midst of all that. I just asked, am I doing something wrong? 
And in the midst of all that kind of doubt and confusion, God gave me this verse from 1 Peter where, where, where Peter says the same thing, talking about suffering. He said, God says to him, you were called to this. That's why I chose you. You're not doing something wrong. That's what I appointed you to, just like Paul. You were chosen to suffer. It's all part of the plan. For you, maybe it's opposition from a spouse or your parents. You have a new believer in our church who's receiving it from her children. She's a mom, first one to come to Christ in her family, and her daughter is making fun of her. And she's just like, I, I wasn't expecting this. You thought, am I doing something wrong? Here's a question I'll, I'll ask some of you, because I know that many of you in here are new believers. Or are you ready for this? Are you ready to be criticized and belittled, to have your motives impugned, to feel like you're all alone? And when it happens, are you going to keep doing what Paul did, which is to keep boldly testifying to Jesus? Look at the next verse. Paul did the opposition, kept going into the synagogues and kept preaching boldly. Notice in those next few verses how many times the word boldly is used. At Damascus, Paul preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed the implication there of boldly against the Hellenist. But they were all seeking to kill him. Here's the question. What if Paul had not continued to preach like that? What if their opposition had shut him down? Humanly speaking, you and I would not be sitting here today. If Paul had gotten quiet because of the opposition, we would not be here. Paul's faithfulness here, Paul's faithfulness, let me say it, there, is what allows you and I to sit here. So the question for you is who in your life is their eternity depending on the consistency of your confession? I'm not sure if we're ready for this, to be honest. Somehow we have grown accustomed to a culture, a Christian culture, that just affirms us and appreciates us and rewards us with success as if that is what Jesus promised to those who become followers of Jesus, and that is a lie. Let's finish this book by a guy named Rod Dreher called Live Not By Lies, and he points out that in every age, our enemy creates a tyranny. His goal is to create a tyranny that keeps the gospel from being proclaimed in ancient Rome, it was a pagan tyranny. And um, under the Roman Catholic Church, it would have been a religious tyranny. And communist countries around the world right now, it's an atheistic tyranny. In our own country, it's becoming a political correctness tyranny. But the goal is always the same, to keep you from preaching. Because humanly speaking, the eternities of others that God has put in your life depends on you continuing on in the faithful proclamation of what the gospel is. I'm not talking about what I do from up here. I'm talking about what you do when you are just sharing Christ with somebody boldly and telling them that Jesus Christ is the only hope of their salvation. At the end of the day, you're going to have to ask yourself a question. And that question is, are their eternities worth it? That you will endure the impugning of your motives and the opposition because that is appointed to you. God allowed Paul to be opposed. He allowed him to suffer. He allowed Satan to, to resist you. That's what you're appointed to. Paul was chosen, yet he was opposed. Here's the second one. Paul was chosen, yet God took nearly two decades to prepare him. Something you don't immediately see here is there's a lot of time that passes in these verses. It reads to us like a couple afternoons. Verse 23, it says, after many days, there's your key had passed, he escaped from Damascus and went to Jerusalem. Many days, scholars tell us, is three years. How do we know that? Well, Paul tells us himself in Galatians 1. 
In fact, real quick, I'll put it on the screen for you. Right after I was saved, I did not immediately consult with anybody, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went again to Jerusalem to visit Cephas in the name for Peter and remained within 15 days. Three years passed between Paul's conversion and when he met the first apostle. Three years where he got treated as a nobody. Three years where nobody paid him any attention. He walked in the room. Nobody called his name. Nobody said, there's Brother Paul. He was just a great big nobody. What happened during those three years? Well, Paul tells us in Galatians, he spent time with Jesus, kept going to the synagogues, bringing Jews to Jesus one by one. After three years, he gets his first introduction to the, you know, the church brass, the important people, Peter. Then Paul disappears again for 14 years. How do we know that? Well, again, Paul tells us in Galatians. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. Well, what happened during those 14 years? Again, we're not entirely sure, but we get little hints in his epistles. We know that Jesus gave him some visions of himself, explained to Paul what the church is supposed to look like. We also know that during those 14 years, Paul got persecuted a lot. Scholars say this passage in 2 Corinthians, Paul is likely referring to that 14-year period. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. Again, I'll put it on the screen. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. They say that this refers to those first 14 years because all the persecution we read about of Paul in Acts has Paul suffering at the hands of Gentiles. Here he says it's at the Jews, so this is free the book of Acts. This is those first 14 years. Three times he says I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned which means belted with baseball-sized rocks and people thought he was dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. By the way, when I read that, I have to ask, how many times do you have to be shipwrecked before you conclude this is not a good way of transportation for me? (laughs) If I'm in at least, I would even say two plane wrecks, I will no longer pursue air travel as my mode of transportation. Paul says, I was on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger of the city, danger of the wilderness, danger of sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Friend, never, ever make the mistake of asking Paul, how, how are things going, brother? His autobiography would have been called my worst life now. This is what I've got. By the way, most of that happened... Most of what I just read to you, most of that happened in that little itty-bitty white space between verses 22 and verse 23 of your Bible. I'll just tell you, as pastors in seminary, I got, I got trained how to exegete the fine tenses of Greek verbs, but the hardest parts of the Bible to interpret are those little blank spaces. Even after verse 31, Paul really fades out of the spotlight until chapter 13, where Paul is given his first official ministry assignment. Now, there is some question as to what happened exactly when, but bottom line, all scholars that I've read agree that there are at least 17 years between the time that God called him in Acts 9 and when he is officially commissioned as a missionary in chapter 13. God took a minimum of 17 years to prepare him. And you cannot tell me that Paul during that time was not asking God, why are things moving so slowly? And yet, friend, this kind of delayed preparation in Scripture is so common, I would almost say it is par for the course. We talked about David. I know you spent several years or several months studying him, probably felt like several years, but you're aware of David. God calls David and then sends him back to the pastor. God called Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt. And then he had him 10 sheep for his father-in-law for 40 years. Y'all, I mean, talk about a life fail. 
You go from being a candidate for president to tending sheep for your father-in-law living in his basement. God told Joseph he was going to use him to save Israel and then send Joseph off to slavery in prison for due two decades. Chuck Swindoll says that three words characterize these kinds of blank spaces, particularly for David. The first word he said is, is obscurity. I mean, think about David's blank space. Nobody paid any attention to him. Here's your second word, monotony. David, what'd you do today? I watched the sheep. They walk from here to there. What else did you do? I practiced on my harp. Wrote a couple songs. You want to hear one? No. What else? I worked a little with my slingshot. I could knock that you know, fig out of that tree right over there. You want to see me do it? I don't really care. Well, David is telling you all this stuff, your eyes are glazing over. It seems so insignificant, obscurity and monotony. The third word Chuck Swindoll says, though, is reality. In the past year, David is learning the themes that would one day inspire him to write the greatest worship song of all time, Psalm 23. He's going to develop his courage by fighting the lion and the bear. One day, he's going to look at Goliath and he's going to say, I'm not afraid of you because I've seen God use my slingshot to take out lions and bears. And if he can do it there, he can certainly do it with you. The desert is where Paul really came to know Jesus. Again, as Christians, we, if we're in a Bible study, we learn how to exegete the fine tenses of Greek verbs, but the hardest parts of the Bible to interpret are those little blank spaces. And yet, I promise you, that is where God is doing the best writing he is doing in your life. I thought Billy Graham said it. If I had it to do over again, I would speak less and study more. I'd spend more time in spiritual nurture, seeking to grow closer to God so I could become more like Christ. I would spend more time in prayer. I would spend more time studying the Bible and meditating on His truth, not only for sermon preparation, just for my life. All was chosen. It got to a long time to prepare it. Here's number three. Paul was chosen, yet he suffered. You got to choose one word to characterize those first 17 years. It's the word suffering. That's what God had said. He's a chosen instrument of mine, and I'm going to show him that I chose him so that he could suffer. Suffering is one of God's primary training tools for his people. Suffering does not mean something is wrong, hardly. God is preparing you to be an instrument of his power, a channel. The word that Paul uses in verse 15 literally means a vessel. Excuse me, that God uses in verse 15 is a vessel. Vessels have no power or worth of their own. Vessels are only conduits for power. The value is not in the pot of gold. It's in what the pot holds. The power that powers everything in your house is not in the wires that connect everything. It's what runs through the wires. In order to become, in order for Paul to become a vessel of, of a, an instrument of God's work, he had to be stripped of all self-reliance, a sense of his own value. That's why A.W. Tozer said, it's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has first hurt him very deeply. You see, up until Paul's conversion, Paul, like me, had seen himself as a pretty capable tool for God. But God didn't want any tools. God wanted Paul to become a vessel of his power, not Paul's strength or eloquence. You can see it in the transformation of his name. Saul was a strong Jewish name. It was a king that was head and shoulders above everybody else. Paul, literally in Greek, means small. So Saul the mighty needed to become Paul the small. 
That reminds me of that ancient Japanese practice. I'm sure your pastor has told you about it at some point, kintsugi. And I know that's not how you pronounce it, but that's the best I can do. Kintsugi was this ancient ancient um, way of making pottery where they would make this beautiful pottery, but people all over the world made beautiful pottery. So this Japanese custom was to do one final thing when it was finished, and that is to take that pot and shatter it over a rock into dozens, sometimes hundreds of pieces. And then they would take the pieces of that pot and they would put them back together, melting gold into the seams so that now this pot is put back together and it's got gold woven all through it so that the value of the pot having been broken and put back together was infinitely more than the pot before it had been broken. Before you are broken, you cannot be filled with Jesus. Saul, the accomplished Pharisee, could not help the churches. You know why? Because the churches are filled with people with problems. They're filled with people with pain and confusion and doubt. And Saul, the perfect Pharisee, might stand on the stage and impress them, but he could not help them. But the Paul that had been broken and had walked through pain and failure, the Paul who believed that he was the chief of sinners, that Paul could testify that God will be faithful even in our darkest days. That's a guy who can help me. The best parts of Jesus you're only going to learn in the valley of pain. So God has to turn you from Saul the mighty into Paul the small. I'll just repeat it again. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has first hurt him very deeply. I'll write this down. Here's another way of saying it. If dependence is the objective, then weakness is your advantage. If dependence is your objective, and it is, then weakness becomes your advantage because suffering helps you get in touch with your weakness so that you'll learn to depend on God who is your strength. That's why Martin Luther, the, the famous reformer, said that three things make a good theologian, make a good minister, a good witness. He said, number one is study, number two is prayer, and number three is affliction. Suffering purges you of your self-confidence. Suffering produces actual faith in you. Luther had this great analogy of, he said, it's like when you're, if you're a dad and your son is trying to take something from you, you know, get something out of your hand, sometimes you'll just hold on to it a little bit to test his resolve. You kind of, you're holding on to it to test his strength. Luther said, that's what God does to us in prayer. He is testing us to see if we'll turn away from him and choose another route besides him to get to where we need to go. And what he's asking is, do you actually believe I'm good? I'm gonna withhold this because I wanna see how quickly you'll turn away. And God uses suffering to produce faith in us where you say, I can't go anywhere else. You're my only hope and I've gotta stay here with you. I'd rather be with you than anywhere else, even if it meant having all the things that I'm asking you for. Suffering produces actual faith. Suffering is also where God purifies your heart, stripping you of your idols to show you those places where you're attempting to use God instead of knowing God and worshiping God. I think of Abraham. Abraham left everything to follow God. That's a pretty good start. God had promised Abraham that if he followed him, he would make of him a great nation that would bless the world. The problem is that Abraham at the, child, at the time was childless. He and his wife, Sarah, they'd always wanted a son together, but now he's about 90 and she's 80. And they had understandably given up. God kept his promise in their old age and gave him a son. That son, Isaac, was the most precious thing in the world to him. It represented not just a child, it represented all of his hopes and dreams for the future. Everything he wanted to see God do in his life at 90, he ain't having no more kids. This is it. So imagine how devastating when God shows up in Genesis 22 and says, I want you to sacrifice him. No explanation. Imagine being Abraham. I left everything to follow you. What have I done wrong? Why are you punishing me? 
And to all of this, as you often feel like sometimes, God gives no answer. This had come after Abraham had left to follow many years into ministry. God puts you through a test to see if you form ministry into an idol. I'll just tell you, as a pastor, ministry is a great place for people with the idol of success to hide. Because you can cloak all of your service to God as if like, or all your, all your service of your idol as if it's faithfulness to God. Abraham obeyed, the angel stops him. And then he says, now I know, now I know that you love me. Because there's nothing you prioritize or depend on more than me. What if this is some of what God is doing in your life? What if he is testing you to see what you love and trust the most? You see, I'll tell you, sometimes I think we do wrong when we try to find a silver lining in everything. Oh, yeah, I got passed up for that promotion, but that set me up for a better job where I made more money. I mean, yeah, that happens sometimes, but some things God does just to prepare your heart more for himself, right? Reminds me of the story of the little bird flying south for the winter. The bird got a late start, right? So it was so too cold, you know, to fly south for the winter. He's by himself and is up in the atmosphere trying to make it south and is so cold that his little wings freeze. And so he crash lands. He thinks, this is terrible. Now I'm going to freeze to death and die. Long by comes a cow. Just, sorry to be crude, but takes a dump on him. And now he's thinking, well, this just went from bad to worse because now I'm going to die here in the cold and I'm going to die smelling like manure. What? The manure thaws his wings. And now he can move them again and now he can fly. And so he's so happy at what's happened that he begins to sing and chirp and that gets the attention of a cat who comes along and eats him. And the lessons you could learn from this great little parable are three. Number one, not everyone who drops manure on you is your enemy. Lesson number two, not everybody who digs you out is your friend. And lesson number three, when you are in manure, sometimes it's helpful just to keep your little chirper shut and just see what God might be up to. Because God is at work in you. Do you see that phrase in verse 15? He is a chosen instrument of mine, mine. What a precious word. God calls you first to himself, only secondarily does he call you to a task. God did not save you because he needed you to do something for him. He saved you so that you could know him. God can handle the spread of Christianity. He just wants you to know him. The point of Christianity is not for you to spread Christianity. The point of Christianity is for you to know Christ. And if you think that spreading Christianity or creating good in the world is your primary calling, you are going to be frustrated. But when you understand the point is to know Christ, then a lot of that pain and a lot of that waiting and a lot of that opposition that you go through, it starts to make a lot more sense. And see, if all that's true, then that means that what God is doing in you this morning through your pain is just as significant as what he's doing through you. Right now, he is preparing some of you just for himself in your disappointment, in your obscurity. So quit fighting him on it and quit saying you don't care. He does care. The cross proves that he cares. They wouldn't invest that much in you in the cross only to abandon you during a difficult season of your life. Paul was chosen, yet he was opposed. Paul was chosen, yet God took many years to prepare him. Paul was chosen, yet he suffered. You are chosen. You were chosen, yet you are opposed. You are delayed and you suffer. Let me end all this by reflecting just for a few moments very quickly on that word chosen. Because that is the key to grasping everything else. A friend of mine who went through a moral failure in ministry. He said, you know, I've learned that the sweetest doctrine in all of Christianity to, it, to me 
is the doctrine that God shows me. Now, I'm not saying that trying to turn you into a Calvinist. That's not the point. Just that at the heart of everybody who knows God is the awareness that God is the one who started the process, that God is the one who pursued you. I don't care how you dot the I's or cross the T's in your theology, but your being a Christian was his idea, not yours. Your service as a parent, your role in mission and ministry, that was his idea, not yours. And what that means, listen, is that what God has started, he will finish. And it means that when you feel like giving up, it doesn't matter because God is the one mom or dad that is saving your kids. He uses me in the process. I'm a really important part of that process, but God is the one that is writing their story. And he didn't say, go save your kids for me. He said, just make yourself available so that I can work in their lives through you. God is the one writing their story. He chose me. And so when I feel like I got nothing left to bring to the table, I say, I didn't start this, so I can't finish it. You're going to have to sustain it. And it means when I fail, he's not giving up because I can promise you this. When God chose this guy, it wasn't because he was living in a stellar way. Like I think of the words here of Charles Spurgeon. I have no questions that God chose me because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I would never have chosen him. I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. He had to choose me before I turned out bad. He must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I feel like I'm forced to accept that doctrine. Friend, what God started, he's gonna finish. God didn't choose me because of my righteousness and that means he's not gonna give up on me when I fail. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. You are a chosen instrument of his. And God wants to show you both individually and he wants to show you as a church how much you're going to have to suffer for the sake of his name. Just don't give up. Don't give up because you're chosen. And you're chosen to know him, to be owned by him, to be fully his. And then to be his vessel, his instrument in the world. Would you bow your heads with me and let me pray over you. As your head bowed, maybe you just want to take a moment and just think about where's that place in your life where you think God has forgotten you? What if you could just say right now in that blank space, God, in that blank space that David went through and Moses went through and Joseph went through and Paul went through, I'm going to trust you're doing the same thing in my life that you were doing in theirs, and that is preparing me for you and then preparing me to be a vessel. Could you just say right now from your heart, name what it is you're confused about and say, with this, I trust you. With this, I trust you. God, I've prayed all weekend that you would use this to give faith and confidence in a God who is unfailingly good and who never stops pursuing his good plan in our lives. May you give that confidence and that faith to brothers and sisters here in the room this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.